Well, it is uh, good to be with you here the, this morning. It, this is a group that is uh, near and dear to my heart because I'm, I'm talking to people who love the, the liturgy already because you're already giving your time and your, your talents uh, to help us with the sacred liturgy. Uh, one of the good things to keep in mind with whenever we talk about the liturgy is that uh, the liturgy is, is always God's work. We actually call that Opus Dei in Latin, the work of God, refers to all the, the prayers that we do. Uh, so we assist in trying to make the, the liturgy as beautiful as possible and to, to celebrate it the, the way the church asks us to do. And of course, during this time of Advent, I think if there's one thing on our minds, uh, if people were to ask, like, what do I need to do more of during Advent? Well, it's probably, I need, I need to pray. Uh, and one of the things that's good for us as liturgical ministers, especially, is to realize that uh, personal prayer that one-on-one -on -one kind of relationship with God is, is one of the most important things we do. To be able to talk to God in the silence of our heart or perhaps out loud, or I like to, to sing. It's one of the benefits of being able to have the key to the church that when it's all locked up, I can just go over and sing my little heart out in the church and don't have to worry about who's listening or who I'm disturbing. Uh, or I can play my trumpet. I like to play my trumpet to, to pray to, to God. So plug for our, our Advent uh, Christmas carol uh, talk coming up in a couple Thursdays. So put that on your calendar Thursday night at seven. Um, Thursday, not this week, but next week. Um, so we'll, the 16th, we'll, we'll do a little uh, Christmas carol theology. What do all those things mean in those Christmas carols that we sing? So there are lots of Advent things that we do uh, that are, are personal. But one of the things that uh, we recognize about the sacred liturgy is that this is the official prayer of the church. So what we just prayed in the Liturgy of the Hours, you know, it, it comes out of that really complex book, as you saw. Who would have thought that a little book could be that complex? It took us, you know, multiple stops to talk, go to this page, go to that page. I assure you that if you want to take up this practice of praying the Liturgy of the Hours, it gets easier. It's, it's not quite as complicated as that. In fact, you can get an app on your phone and you don't have to turn any pages. Priests do that too. Um, so Father Mark is raising his hands. There was, there was a while I went like years uh, without ever using the, the book. I just used my, my phone. I'm, I, I pray the, the Liturgy of the Hours now in, in Latin from the 1962 version. So I actually, I kind of liked the, the book in my, my hand in my prayer chair in the morning. But when we pray the liturgy, it's not just us individually that do it. It's the whole church. Even if you're praying uh, the Liturgy of the Hours by yourself, uh, as priests will normally do that, uh, you're praying with the whole church. And so part of what I wanted to do today is look at in the liturgy of the church for Advent, how does the church, with the kind of the, the capital C there, how does the church give us to prepare for the coming of Jesus? I always feel like Advent is a little too short. Uh, after all, to prepare for Easter, we have all those seven weeks of, of Lent, um, to the six weeks of Lent to, to prepare Advent, we, we get three and a half. It, it seems like it, it goes really quickly, but it's filled with a lot of wisdom. And so there are lots of different ways that we could look at uh, the, the liturgy of Advent, but let me just draw your attention to uh, some of the various places. When I talk about the liturgy, well, I think probably a lot of us are familiar with the readings. So the readings from sacred scripture. If you're at Sunday Mass, you know, we, we get the first reading, the second reading, and then the gospel. But if you think about it, there's, there's a lot more texts than just those that are readings from sacred scripture. If you were to grab a copy of, of the Missal, which would, would be 
That, that's ultimately the, the big red book that the priest uses, but people have their own personal versions, and I, I encourage you to do that, that have the readings for the day. You'll find that in addition to the, the readings, properly speaking, there are, there are antiphons. So you'll find a, an entrance antiphon, a communion antiphon. If you were to go to the official liturgical books that have all the text, there's, there's an offertory antiphon. There is that responsorial psalm, which I always think gets kind of short shrift, really. We've got the first reading and the second reading. Well, what was that thing in the middle? That's a reading from sacred scripture too, that psalm. That's just as much a reading from sacred scripture. It's just that it happens to be in a particular sort of genre that we call a psalm, which means it was probably originally written for music. So it's great that we, we often, if on Sundays, that we sing it. So there's part of the liturgy. Uh, what we, we often miss out on uh, is that when it comes to the, the music at Mass, for most of our, our history, the, the music was also a reading from sacred scripture, which happened to be set oftentimes uh, to, to music. So a little inside baseball for the liturgical people in the room. When it comes to, gosh, what should we sing at Mass, the, the church actually has its own book of music for Mass. And it, it's called, a fancy word, it's called the gradual, because gradus in Latin is step. And it used to be that these chants were chanted from the, the step leading up to where the other readings would be chanted. So this book of the songs of the church, the chants, is known as the Roman gradual. And if you were to look in there, it's got the, the music for every mass that we would celebrate. Problem is that uh, we also have options that we could do other things. and. Number four on the list of options is to sing some other song. Well, we've gotten so used uh, to the time after Vatican II of singing the fourth option, sing a song, that I think we miss out a little bit on some of the other texts of sacred scripture. This is the, what popularly became known as Gregorian chant because Pope Gregory the Great put all these texts to, to music. Um, and so we, we've lost that a little bit, but it, it comes back a, a little bit at Christmas. You'll, you'll start to hear some of the famous chants. And uh, oftentimes the, the masses themselves will get known by their, their name based on the, the chant that is used. For instance, we're going to come up here in just a, another week to Gaudete Sunday. Well, Gaudete is from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. It means y'all rejoice. It's the second person plural of Gaudere, which means to rejoice. So it's Y'all rejoice right now, basically. And he says, I'll say it again, rejoice in the Lord always. Well, the reason it's called Gaudete Sunday is because if you were to look in the Missal, the song, if you will, the chant for the entrance begins with Gaudete. And so this uh, tradition of naming our masses based on the first word of the introit uh, is something that we're a little bit familiar with, at least during Gaudete Sunday and Latare Sunday in, in Lent. So there's some other texts that we, we often ignore uh, that are part of the liturgy. Um, there's also, and we'll look at this, there, there are other prayers during the mass that we can look at that the liturgy, if you were to just take the text that you find in the Roman Missal, there is a wealth of things to meditate on. So you can pray through these things. I hope you are praying by maybe looking at the readings before mass. That would be a good thing to do because there's not a whole lot of time at mass to quietly reflect and talk to God in your heart about what you just heard. The church does actually tell us that after the readings, there should be, get this, 
silence. I know, but what happens? Yeah, if we're silent, what happens is everyone's like, what's he doing up there? I mean, did the psalmist forget? Who's gonna, is someone supposed to go read the psalm? Father, is, is he asleep? Like, no, there's actually supposed to be silence. So the liturgy is the prayer of the church. So it should be prayerful. I think sometimes we do get kind of in the mode of, well, we, you know, this comes and then that comes and that comes and it is a ritual, which means that it has steps and we do it. But it's supposed to be prayer as well. And part of the instructions from us are for silence. Uh, but even if we were to observe the silences that the church gives us to reflect, it's still not enough. I mean, sometimes I can just take one verse of sacred scripture and I'll just sit with that maybe for half an hour and just allow myself to kind of be in the scene, to meditate what it would be like uh, to be there. Who might I be in that scripture passage that I'm reading? And then I might talk to God uh, about it. This is the kind of monastic or, or monk practice of Lexio Divina, sacred, sacred reading, divine reading, uh, to pray over a passage of scripture. <clears throat> so as I, as I structure today's kind of time that we have to have a little day of reflection, I, I chose to look primarily at uh, some of the readings uh, that we have during the period of, of Advent. And we'll look at some other text as well. Uh, but I wanted to, to kind of focus on the readings. But as we start, before we get into the readings, I'll, I'll give you one prayer uh, from the Roman Missal. And I I mentioned uh, in one of my homilies, I, I think uh, a couple weeks ago and even last week, that the, the opening prayer at Mass is called the Collect. So if you're, if you're looking in your little hand missile, you'll see Collect. Uh, what this is, is that the, the priest, after the Gloria is done, or on a weekday where there's no Gloria, or it's Advent, so there's no Gloria, after the, the penitential act, the Kyrie then, we have that first prayer that the priest prays. Now, it begins by the priest saying, let us pray. This is not hard. When the priest says, let us pray, this one's easy. You should pray. <laughs> Mind blown. I uh, know. I think sometimes people think let us pray is like Latin for altar boy, please, please bring me the, the book. Um, so I'm, I'm really good about this. And, and Father, Father Mark is even doing this now too, that I, I don't want let us pray to mean, okay, now bring me the book. So I, I actually make the server come some first. So when it's in front of me, I could say, let us pray. Father Mark now doing that too. <laughs> well, so the priest says, let us pray, and everybody uh, prays. The, the server's probably praying, please don't let me drop this big, heavy book. Um, but at least they're standing there now. And so we pray, and we call to mind all the things that we would want to pray for. Whenever you come to Mass, when we talk about full, conscious, actual participation in Mass, it doesn't mean doing stuff at Mass. The most probably active, conscious thing you will do to participate at Mass will be to come with something you want to offer, something you want to pray for, and eventually learn to offer yourself at Mass to God. That is what the church means by full conscious actual participation. And it happens primarily in one of these ways right here at this initial silence. Let us pray. At that moment, you are to actively participate in the Mass by calling to mind all the things you want to pray for. Priest says, let us pray, and so you do. You think of all the things you want to pray for, and then now everybody having prayed for what they want to pray for, the, the priest then extends his hands to show that he's praying on behalf of everybody. 
which by the way, this is why you, you don't hold your hands out like this at the Our Father or hold hands or things. The priest does this and that the people are not to mimic the, the priest. The priest does this because he's showing that in his office as presider, he is now offering this prayer on behalf of everybody. He is collecting it all together. That's why he holds his hands out like this. And he prays the collect, which is uh, a text that is appropriate to each day. And uh, I thought we would start with uh, the one that uh, is for the first Sunday of Advent in the old missal and in the new missal, it, it gets relegated to, it's the prayer on, on Friday of the first week. So we just used it yesterday. So uh, we'll, we'll start with, with this prayer. So let us pray. Stir up your power, we pray, O Lord, and come, that with you to protect us, we may find rescue from the pressing dangers of our sins, and with you to set us free, we may be found worthy of salvation. Who live and reign with God the Father in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. So as we start now to, to look at the, the church's official kind of prayer during Advent, notice that right away, the, the, the very opening prayer, uh, it, it talks about not the birth of Jesus. So Advent does not primarily prepare us for the birth of Jesus. Because after all, spoiler alert, Jesus was already born. It, it happened about 2,000 years ago. And when, when we in the liturgy call to mind events that are historical events, like, like Easter and, and Christmas and things like this, we, we do not like kind of, it, it's not a little play. That's why at, at mass, for instance, we don't, we don't do little like, you know, nativity plays or, or something because the liturgy is something much bigger than simply like acting something out that happened 2000 years ago. The liturgy actually makes present an event that happened once in time. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, year 33, once. Jesus was born, you know, December 25th, year zero in Bethlehem once, but in the liturgy, we we bring these events back to life. We make them present across time because God is outside time. So as we go through Advent, it's not simply thinking about, gosh, what would it have been like to, to get ready for the birth of Jesus? And we do not pretend that Jesus is born again on December 25th. Rather, the entire mystery of the life of Jesus is made present at every Mass. And especially when it comes to Advent, there's, there's not just the, the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago that we're thinking of, although we do think of that. But as you'll see, we're also praying for Jesus to come back. And if you heard my homily last Sunday, if not, what are you doing? It's on seanthebaptist.org. Get out there and, and listen to it. Um, so yeah, plug for the website. And I'll, I'll put this on the website too, but go out. And I, I talked about how we start Advent kind of on the same theme that we ended last year. Advent is the beginning of the liturgical year. Well, what did we end with last year on Christ the King Sunday? We ended the year with get ready. Jesus eventually returns in glory at the end of time, so y'all be ready. And what do we start Advent with the very next week? It's a brand new year. Get ready for the Advent, the coming of Jesus. And what is that primary coming? Well, we hear it in our opening prayer. Nothing about Jesus being born. We, we pray for Jesus to come now. And what do we want him to do? Protect us so that we can be rescued from what? The pressing danger of our sins. Like 
Father Sean, Advent's like a happy time. Isn't Lent when we focus on the pressing danger of our sins? Advent is when we sing like joy to the world and things like that, right? Well, not exactly. Advent, notice we wear, we wear purple. So it, it, it's not a as penitential kind of season as Lent. So you don't have to pull out your hair shirt and, and your whip and things like that. But if you've got your hair shirt, fine, keep it on. But it is still a penitential time that if we're going to understand the meaning of Advent, we have to understand why we, we right now want and very much need Jesus to come. And for that, I, I kind of look now at the, the readings uh, of Advent and three key people that are kind of the, the people that the church gives us during this, this rather brief preparatory time of Advent for the celebration of Christmas. And, and those three people are the prophet Isaiah, John the Baptist, the last and greatest of the prophets, and the inspiration for seanthebaptist.org. Uh, Sean is the Irish version of John. So John the Baptist is my primary patron. So I love Advent because John the Baptist is just everywhere. He's like the, the star of Advent for a while. Um, if Jesus gets to be the star at Christmas, John the Baptist is kind of the star of Advent. So we'll look at John the Baptist. And then finally, Mary. She's, she's up there with John the Baptist. I mean, she's, she's pretty good. She doesn't have a website named after her. Um, so we'll, we'll look at those, those, those three. And I, I, it's not necessarily, again, me that chose those three. The church kind of says, hey, people of God, let's, let's focus on these three people during Advent because if you look at the Sundays of Advent, um, our readings focus on these. And now really Isaiah, I'll start with him uh, because we're, we're gonna get him this weekend. And so I, I kind of grabbed just on the front of your handout there, uh, for those that don't know, the, the readings that we use at Sunday Mass are on a, a three-year cycle. So... Um, each year, basically, we get Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then sprinkle John in throughout the three. But the church is pretty cool, because when we wanted to come up with names for the, the three different years, I think we hold like a synod or a council or something, and they came up with A, B, and C. I know, that's cool. And then we have a whole different cycle for the weekday readings, if you notice. There, that's a two-year cycle of readings. And so, again, major council of bishops decided we're going to call that year one and year two. So what I've grabbed for you uh, is the all nine readings for the, the next three Sundays of Advent. Uh, we already went past the, the first Sunday of Advent, so I'll skip that. You all were at Mass, and so obviously you know all about the first Sunday of Advent because you were there. So we're going to look at the three Sundays of Advent that remain, and uh, I put your A, B, and C on there for you so we can kind of see what that's about. So Isaiah, he is the, the great kind of prophet of, of Advent in that we read a lot from Isaiah. Notice we, we read from Isaiah today during the Liturgy of the Hours, didn't we? And all through Advent, we'll get a bit of Isaiah. Uh, the, the first reading at, at Mass is, is from Isaiah on all three Sundays of the second Sunday of Advent. So I want to kind of look a little bit about that. And here's why this is, Isaiah is important. Isaiah, he's probably not, the, the book of Isaiah is probably not just one person that, that wrote it because it, it spans too great a time. 
Uh, but it's all in the, the spirit of real historical Isaiah that lived and maybe some of his people helped you know, add to it. But essentially, the Isaiah that we're looking at at this time of year is one who is offering prophecies about the return from exile of the Jewish people. So right away, if I were to ask you what's the most important thing you need to know to celebrate Christmas well, uh, it, it's not your uh, Amazon password, although that's, that's helpful to celebrate Christmas well. It's not even at the time that the mall opens. Probably the most important thing you need to know if you're gonna celebrate Christmas really well, you need to know about the Babylonian exile. No, no joke, that's probably the most important thing that will help you celebrate Christmas well is the Babylonian exile. So, nut, nutshell version of this. Uh, God promises, hey, you're gonna be my people, I'll be your God, that'll be super cool. You keep those commandments Moses gave you, well, all simpatico, very nice. We don't do that. Uh, we, we sin big time, we reject God, we, we make golden calves and that didn't go well. So when we finally get to you know, Jerusalem eventually, uh, eventually they make golden calves again. Yeah, see that uh, in the scriptures, very distressing. Uh, we get so bad, the, the kingdom splits apart, 10 northern tribes get exiled, never to be seen again. Eventually, the little remnant that's left in Jerusalem, they get exiled as well off to Babylon. God sometimes allows us, when we are spiritually far from God, it, it's dangerous to be spiritually far from God because unlike when we're physically sick, we don't recognize it. So sometimes God has to actually hit us over the head with something we will understand to show us that we are, we are far from God. And so in the case of the, the Israelites, they had long since been close to God in their worship, in their prayer. They're worshiping pagan gods. They're intermarrying. They're far from God. You stay far from God like that, you wind up in hell when you die. So God doesn't want that. He wants to save us. So he actually allows Nebuchadnezzar, Babylonian king, to come and take them all away into slavery and exile in Babylon, modern day Iraq, around there. So that they will be able to feel in their bodies, we are far from God. We are literally living in somebody else's land, not in the promised land. We are in exile. We are far from God. And hopefully the light will go on. Ah, we've been far from God for a long time. Now we recognize it. And, and so they, they go off into exile. And it's, it's a very sad thing because uh, God had promised that his kingdom under David would go on forever. He makes a covenant with King David. It says, a descendant of yours will sit upon your throne forever. There will be a descendant of the house of David to rule over my people forever. Think of it as kind of like a, a big family tree. So you've got David, the, the root of it, and then his descendants are just gonna blossom like a big tree. Problem is, Babylonian exile happens, and the last descendant of King David, uh, who is far from God, not leading his people well, well, the Babylonians come, they kill all of his sons before him, and then just to rub it in so that the last thing he will ever see is all of his sons being killed, they, they kill all his sons, and then they put his eyes out and blind him and take him in prisoner to Babylon. It's kind of like the, the big family tree of David just got chopped down and, and left dying at the side of the road. Prophet Isaiah speaks to us then. 
This is the first quote I put on there, and you've probably heard this quote a lot because it's an Advent quote that we get all the time. This is, this is from the year A, second Sunday of Advent. On that day, a shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots, a bud shall blossom. Doesn't that just warm the heart right there? I mean, I just want to cuddle up by a fire with my eggnog when I hear that. A shoot shall sprout from the stump of Jesse. That's awesome. And from his roots, a bud shall blossom. What more need we say? That's Christmas right there. Well, the problem is it needs a little more explanation because most people do not hear that and immediately think, gosh, warm, toasty by the fire. But if you're a Jew, this, this, is, this is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Uh, this, this stump, a shoot shall sprout. The stump is the family tree of, of David. It got chopped down. There is no king of David ruling on the throne in Israel because the tiny little bit of the Israelites that are left are off way over in Iraq in, in exile, and they're not very happy. And they wonder, how long is it going to be like this? After all, God promised, he made a covenant that we wouldn't be left in exile. He promised that we would have a, a descendant of David ruling over us, not this Babylonian people. God, are you going to live up to your promise? And so Isaiah who had some pretty harsh things to say when people were not doing what they're supposed to, says to the people in exile, hold on, the, the stump ain't completely dead. And if you've ever tried to kill a tree in your yard by cutting it down, you know what I mean. That stump will just keep coming back and like little things sprout here and there and all over. So Isaiah is basically saying, the family tree ain't dead yet. I'm not dead yet. And this shoot that will sprout from the stump of Jesse why, why Jesse? Jesse is the father of King David. So uh, he's kind of like the, the patriarch of the, the line of, of David then. That's why we have Jesse trees sometimes as a, a symbol of, of uh, Advent. I know, you're thinking of the Christmas tree. The reason we have Jesse trees is because of this little passage from Isaiah right here. Um, the stump is actually really important. In fact, if we, if we got it, instead of saying, you know, Christmas tree, I think we'd have, oh, Christmas stump, oh, Christmas stump. Yeah, that, it just it doesn't quite work as well, so it doesn't catch on in the song. But really, oh, Christmas stump would be a, a more appropriate uh, sort of song. So Isaiah is saying, all you in exile, it looks like God's not faithful to his prophecy to David. Just hold on. I ain't dead yet. Jesse is going to have more descendants, and God will keep his promise. So Isaiah is saying, exile is going to end. And that brings us to the next prophecy. A voice cries out, in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wasteland a highway for our God. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill shall be made low. All right, that's another verse that probably sounds familiar to you because it's in Handel's Messiah and a bunch of people are going to the Kaufman Center to see Messiah and hear about, you know, the rough places filled in. Every valley shall be. Yeah, that. Everyone knows that because it's Messiah. Well, what's that about? Again, Babylonian exile. If you don't know the Babylonian exile, not only do you not know what Christmas is all about, you certainly don't know what Handel's Messiah is all about because this prophecy from Isaiah, this voice crying in the desert, the desert is the, the wilderness that separates Israel and Jerusalem from Babylon and exile. There's a big wilderness in, in between it, a desert. You don't cross it easily. What is God going to do? Make a highway. When it's time to come back from exile, 
there is gonna be like there's a highway from Babylon right back to Jerusalem. Get that road ready because you are leaving exile. You get to go back home and God is gonna help make the way. He's gonna fill in the valleys. He's gonna bring down the mountains. He's gonna make a straight path for you to go back home. Now, I, I don't know about you, but when I see like road construction on the highway, I'm not rejoicing. I, I get kind of upset. In fact, an orange construction cone is probably the last thing anybody wants to see. But like the, the Christmas stump, I think if we understand it right, we could really grow to love orange construction cones. In fact, orange construction cone might make a pretty nice symbol for Advent. <laughs> this is why, this is why now, because no, no, one, no one loves road construction when it's going on, okay? But when, when the road construction gets done, that's pretty cool. You know, I was driving down to Branson with my, my parents and uh, we were coming back yesterday and we're driving and it's like so quiet on the road because they had just resurfaced this road. We're like, this is kind of strange. Like there should be a pothole or something. This is just too quiet. Uh, because when the road is all nice and resurfaced, like we just kind of take it for granted. Yeah, this is how it should be. But when there's construction, oh, I hate construction. Okay, so nobody loves road construction when it's happening, but after it's done, it's pretty cool. In fact, I, I like to, to think of what it would have been like to cross Kansas in a covered wagon with no roads. Um, like, how did we do that? I just drove down to Branson and back, you know, just a couple days just for fun. Like, that's like a month-long journey. You got to, like, pack some oxen and go get some bacon and, you know, pack your wagon for a couple months journey to do that, you know, 100 years ago even or something. Uh, so we've come a long way. Well, this spiritual image of the highway in the wilderness that Isaiah is talking about is, again, a symbol of hope that if you're feeling like you're in exile, if you're down and out, far from God, don't worry. It may have taken a long time to get into exile. It might have been a really painful, uh, I'm turning away, I'm turning away, I'm turning away, and finally you're far away, like the prodigal son, and you're like, how did I get here? Good news is, as soon as we turn back to God, he's like, highway, you can go back home, and, and God's gonna do it. Uh, and so we might kind of ask ourselves during during Advent if if we're, you know, going through the road construction phase, which we don't like, but maybe maybe your road to God has got some potholes. Uh, don't just ignore the potholes. We, we get what happens if you do that. Uh, they get bigger and it gets really embarrassing. I, went, I was going by a pothole the other day and rather than fix it, they actually put an orange cone in the pothole. <laughs> and I, I watched that orange cone over the course of a, a week or so get lower and lower. And no one fixes the pothole. They just put an orange cup. That's dumb. If you've got a pothole in your spiritual road, just fix it. It looks stupid. And you keep bumping all over it. It's like road construction. It's not fun. We do it. We're better able to receive God. So maybe a little Advent road construction on your highway. Uh, go to confession. That's the way in the church that we resurface our road. Again, it's not fun to resurface the road. But there's no better feeling than having come out of confession and knowing that you've got a brand new road. Do that this advent. Finally, this last one, up Jerusalem, stand upon the heights, look to the east. People look east, the time is near. We sing, yeah, we do that. You ever stop and ask yourself, why am I looking east? Why east? Why not north or south? It's warmer in the south. Why not? People look south, Bahamas there. No, why look east? Um, well, because again, if you're in, geographically speaking, if you're in Jerusalem and the exiles are way over here in the east, in Babylon, Isaiah is saying, 
everybody stand up. Look to the horizon to the east. You're going to see the exiles coming back. And it's, of course, for us as, as Catholics, an even bigger prophecy to look to the east uh, because Jesus tells us when he ascends at the east on the Mount of Olives, he says, just as you saw me going, so I will return. So people look east is a great sign of, of hope for Isaiah. It means the return of exiles from Babylon. Look to the east. You're going to see the exiles coming back from Babylon. It's also a very natural sign. We look to the, the east. That's where the sun rises. It's a sign of, of hope uh, that the sun, the S-O-N, will, will come back from the east. So uh, the, the church, throughout most of our history, we, if possible, we physically built our churches facing east uh, for this, this reason. And so it, it's a really nice thing here at St. Patrick's that our church faces east. And I like, uh, especially this time of year, if I'm celebrating mass and the, the sun is coming up and hits that, that beautiful window, it's a great sign of, of hope. One of uh, the, the antiphons that we pray during Vespers, during Advent, actually refers specifically to this. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about some of these antiphons, but in Latin, it's O Oriens. Uh, like we three kings of Orient are. Orient is the East. Oriens in Latin, it, it means the, the one who is rising. So the, the Oriens, the Orient is the East because that's where the Oriens, the one who rises, comes from. And the Orions, the one who rises, could be the sun, S-U-N. But more appropriately for us, it's the S-O-N who is rising. Jesus rising from the dead, Jesus rising in glory, Jesus rising to come back. And so we should look east with great hope. So that's why when you hear about looking east during Advent, it is the direction of prayer for Christians. You know, uh, Muslims face Mecca, a, a geographical place, you know, so no matter where they're at, they, they face Mecca to pray. Uh, as Christians, we've always faced east for our prayers, not to any geographical spot. So even if you're east of Jerusalem, you would still face east because we don't face Jerusalem or Rome for prayer. Christians have always faced east. And so just, you know, kind of liturgical note for the liturgical nerds. Uh, when, when mass is celebrated with the priest on the same side of the altar as everyone, uh, like was was mandatory before the Second Vatican Council. Now it's optional. Uh, it used to be the priest and the people, everybody faced east together. So it's not that the priest had his back to the people. No, it's that we all faced east together because we're all praying together and we're expecting the return of Jesus. So even if the church couldn't be built facing geographical east, everyone still faced east, liturgically speaking, together because we're all not in a circle <laughs> looking at each other uh, rather, if we're all directed the same way, it makes it look like we're all waiting for something. Like Isaiah says, everybody stand up and look to the east. We actually organized our church that way so that we would all together at mass realize that what we're doing at mass should always be expectant for something that's not yet here, something that is yet to come, namely the return of Jesus in glory. So that's the deal with the priest with his back to the people. Or, and if you, if you hear it spoken of, it's ad orientum, which is literally to the orient, to the east. So doing exactly what Isaiah says. So a little mental note for uh, people look east during Advent. It's all about exile and return. So you wanna be jolly and merry this Christmas, you need to know about the Babylonian exile. So there's your little primer on the Babylonian exile and what Isaiah is talking about. Because Isaiah is complicated, but essentially think Isaiah is talking to people who are in exile and they're going to get to come home. 
we, we can get to do that same thing uh, this Advent, particularly if we get to confession and make our highway back to God. Okay, so Isaiah is kind of the, the star of the, the second Sunday of Advent. But then we get to the real star of Advent, the one that it's really all about, John the Baptist. Seanthebaptist.org, there it is. Um, so the third Sunday of Advent, again, this is the one that starts with Gaudete uh, from the introit. Uh, that's why we wear rose on that Sunday, because we get to rejoice a little bit, uh, even in the middle of some of the, the, the darkness of, of Advent. But John the Baptist features in the gospel of A, B, and C. Uh, Jesus says, amen, I say to you, among those born of women, there's been none greater than Father Sean the Baptist, I mean, John the Baptist. <laughs> and then, as if John had read Isaiah, well, he, he quotes him, so he definitely did. I am the voice of one crying out in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. Where did we hear that? <gasps> Isaiah. He spoils it for us, and he says, as Isaiah the prophet said. So John the Baptist heeded the prophecies of Isaiah. Even after the return from exile, John the Baptist was smart enough to know, um, you know, it wasn't just that one exile when we were far from God. We're kind of far from God right now, John the Baptist thought. In fact, I think we tend to turn away from God all the time. I think we're in need of return from exile kind of every day. And so, especially at the time of John the Baptist, he saw that once again, the Israelites were far from God. They need repentance. And, and this time, it, it can't be just being saved from, from being exiled in Babylon. Like, we need salvation from something way bigger than just losing our land. We're going to lose our salvation. If we die in this state, we are not going to go to heaven because there's an angel blocking the entrance to paradise since the time of Adam and Eve. This is not good. We need something way bigger than simply rescuing from physical exile. John knows we need salvation from our sins. We need to repent and really turn back to God. And you know what? We can't even do that on our own. So John also knew that the Messiah was prophesied who would definitively deliver us from our sins. And so John sees that much as the Babylonians got to come and, and set the Israelites free to go back to Jerusalem. We all need to be set free from sin and exile to go home to God in heaven. And so John is prophesying not return from exile in Babylon, but return from exile far from God in sin. And so he says, make straight the way of the Lord to our hearts we need to convert in our heart and make a straight path to God. And for that, that's why he's out at the Jordan River baptizing people who want to repent. Now, they, they come, and, and John is so great. After all, Jesus has said, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. Now, the people were filled with expectation. Well, what are they expecting? They're expecting the Messiah. Isaiah had prophesied this, that eventually the Messiah would come. In fact, the book of Genesis says in chapter three, verse 16, right after Adam and Eve get kicked out, God says, but although this looks really bad, everyone's exiled from paradise, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. I will send one that will strike at your head. The seed of the woman 
is going to strike and kill the ancient serpent. It's the first good news in the Bible. And so from that time on, people were always looking for the definitive conquering of Satan and his kingdom and the return from the exile and sin. So Isaiah particularly had stirred up people's hope for the coming of the Messiah. And so people think John the Baptist might be him because he's doing things no other prophet had done. So people are thinking John the Baptist might be the Messiah, or if he's not the Messiah, he's at least maybe Elijah, the, the other great prophet, that maybe he's come back because the, the very last book of the Old Testament in the, the Jewish scriptures, the book of Malachi, ends with the prophecy that Elijah the prophet will return. I, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. He was supposed to usher in the Messiah. So they think, well, maybe John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet come back. And Jesus tells us that he, he is fulfilling that, that mission to go before the Messiah, to say, here he comes. But people think that John might be the Messiah. So they say people are filled with expectation and all were asking in their hearts whether John might be the Christ. Christ, Christos in, in Greek means anointed one. The Hebrew is Mashiach, Messiah. So when you, we see Christ, no, that's Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. They are asking whether John might be the Messiah, the promised one who is to come. John answered them all saying, I am baptizing you with water, but one mightier than I is coming. I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So notice that John the Baptist is out in the middle of the wilderness, this time, not people being driven into exile in Babylon forcefully as slaves, but people are actually willfully going out into the wilderness. And if you've been to the Holy Land, to, to go from Jerusalem all the way to the Jordan River, it, it's not an easy journey. This is, this is the, the road down to Jericho where that robber takes over the guy that the Good Samaritan had to help. Um, it's, it's not, it's a wilderness. When, when you leave uh, Jerusalem, it, it's kind of a desert area to get down to the Jordan River because there's no water until you get down to the Jordan. So notice people are leaving the comfort of Jerusalem relatively at that time to go a journey across a desert to get to a little river, which is really not much of anything, to this weird dude out there dressed in camel's hair and is it, is it that John's got some flashy message? I mean, that's what we would think today. People are tuning into their TVs to, to hear the televangelist tell them, it's all gonna be great. Be Christian and God will bless you. You're gonna have money and you're gonna have a, a beautiful looking spouse and everything is just gonna be great. Be Christian because life is awesome. That's the kind of message that attracts us today. And people give lots of money uh, when, when televangelists you know, come on and, and preach that kind of message. Is that how John lured people out into the, the wilderness? Uh, no, did he have a big flashy church? No, nothing, no church, no building, no nothing. What's his message? Repent, you all need to change your ways right now because God is not happy. Well, that's attractive. You know, how many of you would be like, yeah, ooh, that's what I need. I'm gonna go out in the wilderness to hear somebody tell me I'm no good. Well, that's what people do. People came to John the Baptist the hundreds, apparently. They knew, I'm not right. 
I'm, I'm exiled from God in my heart. And here's someone who says he can do something about it. They go out to John to be baptized to show that I'm willing to repent. I'm willing to work on my road. I'm gonna actually go out into the wilderness on my own so that I don't have to get sent there by God so that I can get healed. And then I can return from the East like the exiles right with God. The problem is John is telling them, this is good. Your hearts are, are turning in the right direction, but I don't actually have the power to do fully what you want. I'm not the Messiah. I, I am like Elijah. I'm like the prophet. I'm like Isaiah, who is calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist is often called the, the forerunner, the one who goes before. In fact, we just prayed that in morning prayer, didn't we? That beautiful canticle of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. He says, you, my child, therefore, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to preach forgiveness of sins to God's people. And then throw back to the Orient thing. And so the dawn from on high, the Latin there is the Oriens will dawn upon us, will, will visit us. Again, Zechariah sees that John the Baptist is like the one proclaiming the rising of, of the sun, the rising of Jesus, the rising of the Messiah, He's gonna go before the Lord, prepare his way to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Gosh, these people knew their scriptures back then, didn't they? I mean, like Isaiah's quoting it from memory. John the Baptist is quoting scripture. Zechariah, he hasn't been able to speak for, for weeks after you know not understanding the message of the angel. He finally gets to speak and he's just got like, all this scripture just quotes right out of him. In fact, Mary, when she sings her Magnificat, as we'll get to, she's just quoting scripture. It's beautiful. Do we know the scriptures that well? If not, we're, we're gonna miss the meaning of Christmas because again, part of Christmas is that we know the whole story. That's why John the Baptist is such an incredible figure because he comes right in the middle of the two stories. The Old Testament, God's been preparing for thousands of years for the coming of the Messiah. And John the Baptist, literally it says in, in one of the prayers of mass, he gets to sing of his coming. Isn't that beautiful? John the Baptist goes before the Lord singing of his, his coming. Um, so John the Baptist is the last of the great prophets and the, the, the first to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And so we get him on the, the third Sunday of Advent. All right, John the Baptist is obviously really the star, but then there's this, this other person, Mary. She gets to give birth to God. Yeah, that's pretty cool too. Um, right, so Mary. Obviously, she is not only the most important person in Advent other than Jesus, Mary is the most important, greatest human being that has ever lived. Uh, so she is by far, if we want to know how do we get ready to welcome Jesus, well, we should look at how Mary did it because she literally got to welcome the Messiah into the world in her, her very womb. So Mary, uh, as we get to the fourth Sunday of Advent, notice where we've gone in the church's liturgy. Uh, the first Sunday of Advent, the second Sunday of Advent, all, all we're talking about is freedom from sin. God, please come save us. We are stuck in sin. We've recalled the Babylonian exile. And even though we came out of exile in Babylon, we, we continue to get stuck in sin. There's a little bit of hope in the, the third Sunday of Advent that the Messiah is gonna come. Now, finally, the fourth Sunday of Advent, we start to focus on the coming of Jesus at Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And so the fourth Sunday of Advent, we get the story of 
the birth of, of Jesus, how it came about. In particular, we focus on Mary. When his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, again, to, to understand just what that's all about, you really have to understand the Jewish history here. So Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Now, when we hear the word betrothed today, I, I think that we, uh, we think of like engagement. You know, it's like, oh, I'm gonna give you a ring and we're gonna promise to get married. And it's weird today. People get engaged and it's like, yeah, we're planning a wedding in two and a half years. The heck, how are you gonna do that? If you're getting engaged, I mean, go through six months of marriage prep and let's, let's get on with this. I don't know, you get engaged and you're gonna get married in two years from now. It just, I don't know, I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, but people are kind of living as if they're married before they get married now. So there's less incentive to actually get married, I guess. Uh, nonetheless, Mary and Joseph are betrothed, but in Jewish understanding of marriage custom, this is way, way bigger than engagement. In fact, as we'll see in the scriptures, when the angel comes to Joseph, he says, Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home. Like, wait, 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 they're only, they're only betrothed. I mean, they're not married yet. They're not husband and wife. Actually, in Jewish law, when one is betrothed, at that point, you are known as husband and wife. If you're betrothed, that's your wife. But part of the betrothal ritual is that when the, the father of the bride normally arranges for the husband and his daughter to come together, it's a very sensible kind of thing, uh, the groom is to go off and make a house. Maybe he's got one, maybe he needs to build a new house apart from his parents, but there needs to be a home uh, because husband and wife are gonna come together and they're gonna have kids, so they need a house. He needs to have a job. He needs to make sure that things are stable for a new family to come into existence. So the husband would go off, make a home, and even though they're betrothed and they're known as husband and wife, they don't live together for normally the betrothal period was probably about a year. And part of this uh, is not just to establish a new house, but it also shows that the, the couple is, is not marrying out of, of passion uh, or a, a pregnancy or something like that. That, that no, this is a, a well-discerned decision apart from any kind of, of spur of the moment passion. They live apart for a year to show that they can be chased, basically. That they're not marrying just because we can't control ourselves. So here in that context now, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Jewish people understand what's going on here. They're living apart, even though they're husband and wife, because they're proving that they're going to live chastely. Before they live together, Hmm. but she was found with child. Now that's shocking. People would know like, wait, Mary and Joseph are in the betrothal period and she's pregnant. It can only mean one of two things. Either Mary was unfaithful to the betrothal promise and had marital relations with someone who's not her husband, which would have been, as we know from the scriptures, punishable by death, stoning, uh, if someone violated the betrothal covenant. Or that means that Joseph got her pregnant and he's just not a very good guy because he couldn't maintain the chastity that's required of the betrothal period. And he broke the Jewish laws and, and got his wife pregnant before the betrothal period was over. And how do you know when the betrothal period is over? Because at the end, the, the bridegroom would come to the house of the bride, her father, and take her 
to the new house. That's the bit about before they lived together. The sign of completing the marriage covenant was now you take the wife to your house, now you have marital relations and you start your family. So we're stuck with either Mary was unfaithful and should be put to death or Joseph was unfaithful. Seems like those are the only two options. But of course, we're, we're on the inside of the story. So Matthew is able to tell us, no, no, she was found with child through the Holy Spirit because we know the whole story already of, uh, from, especially from the Gospel of Luke with the, the angel Gabriel coming to, to Mary and how all this comes about. Obviously, Joseph didn't know that part. And so notice how heroic it is on Joseph's part that he decides, all right, if I don't expose her publicly, that's gonna lead everybody to believe the only other possible option, that I was unfaithful. And he's willing to take that instead of exposing Mary. That, and he would have potentially thought that she had been unfaithful. Thank God that you know, the angel comes to Joseph in his dream and explains it all. So Joseph knows the truth, at least he, he trusts it. But still, everyone is gonna think because Joseph didn't denounce Mary, it has to be option B, Joseph was unfaithful. And so he lets everybody think that about him, even though he knows, and we know because the scriptures tell us he's a just and righteous man, that he takes that option. So amazing thing that Joseph does too though. So Mary, definitely great, but we, especially in this year of St. Joseph, we throw in that little bit about Joseph. But notice then we go back to how this happened, how the child came to be through the Holy Spirit. And that's that beautiful passage from, from Luke, which we know is the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel comes, reveals God's plan. And of course, Mary uh, has known the scriptures too. And, and so oftentimes in art, if you see an image of the visitation, uh, Mary's got a, a book on her lap to show that she was, you know, she was praying the scriptures at the time that angel Gabriel comes. And so Mary knows the story. She knows that the Messiah is supposed to come. And if you, if you knew the prophet Jeremiah even, you know that like the time is up, like it's supposed to be like now. Uh, Mary knew all this. And so she, she hears God's plan. She did not expect that uh, the Messiah would be born from, from her or how this would happen. But when the angel Gabriel proposes it to her, she says those beautiful words, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. That may it be in Latin is fiat. Fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum. May it be unto me according to your word. What a just absolutely amazing thing that Mary could have said no at that, that moment. That God, even though he had this entire plan of salvation, he let, let it all come down to, to Mary and her, yes, her fiat. And so obviously John the Baptist, even being as great as he is, there's none, none greater than Mary uh, who at this moment brought the yes that brought Jesus to all of us. So I love this. Um, I went last night actually to see uh, those of you that have been following the, the TV series, The, the Chosen, they, they actually did a little Christmas special. And I, I, I went to see that last night. I might, I might go again. But they, uh, for, for a Protestant kind of created thing, they, they did a beautiful job throughout the series of showing the humanity of, of Jesus and the apostles. But I was, it was really impressive, the, um, the way they just show the humanity of Mary and Joseph in this little Christmas special that they did. So I invite you. Uh, it'll be in the theater stream or go, go see The Chosen, uh, Christmas with The, the Chosen. Uh, a lot of praise and, and worship kind of music from, I like that kind of praise stuff. Um, 
but it's also a little reenactment they did at the birth of Jesus. Hey, Brother Sean, can I make uh, a suggestion to you? We had, we had planned a break, but I'm wondering if you, in your presentation, might consider us taking uh, like a 15-minute break now so as not to rush your presentation, and then we'll just come back and allow you to wrap up, or whenever, as opposed to the break at the very end of your presentation, once you, when you are ready, we'll go ahead and take a 15-minute break just to give people a little walking around. So you don't have to finish before break. Maybe hi, you can, yeah. that, how does that sound? Yeah, um, sure, I, we, we, I was, yeah, I was just about done, but um, if, if you all want me to keep talking, I mean, we can take a break and then I can talk more. Um, yes. We need a break, we'll take a little break, because I was coming up right on a, an hour. Um, you want to take a break? Uh, I was going to go through it pretty quickly. I was planning to be done. Oh, okay. If you want more time on that, I was going to do it in about three minutes. But okay. Okay. Wow. So, so it's kind of like an encore. Like I was, I was wrapping it up, but you're like, no, want more. All right. Well, then let's take a break and we can do more. This is backed by popular demand. I, I don't know. We'll, we'll, well, it's it's a little bit like stoppage time here, I, I I guess, which that didn't go well for sporting the other night. So uh, I pray that I will do better in, in the stoppage time here as we, we keep going uh, a little bit. So just to, to finish up on, on Mary, uh, then that last line, blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. On the fourth Sunday of Advent, year C, which is what we're in this year. Uh, I know those incredible names again. This is year C, year C2. Uh, so happy C2. Um, in year C, uh, we get the story of the visitation where Mary, after she meets with Angel Gabriel and she says her famous fiat, let it be done to me. Scriptures then tell us that she proceeded in haste to the hill country of Judah, uh, where she entered the house and greeted Elizabeth, her female relative. We're not exactly sure how they're related, but she's a female relative. And the angel Gabriel had told Mary that this is how you will additionally be able to know that what I'm telling you is true and that nothing is impossible for God. You know, this seems really difficult, Mary, that like you're gonna be the mother of God. Well, God does all kinds of really strange and cool things. In fact, your, your relative, Elizabeth, although she's very old, is pregnant right now. In fact, this is the sixth month for her already, who was thought barren, for nothing shall be impossible for God. And so that is a little, isn't that great the way God is sometimes generous with us in that Mary probably had enough already to, to say yes, but God's like, you know, here's an extra little gift. And it's, it's not even so much that Mary needed proof because after all, what's the proof? Like she doesn't know for sure that Elizabeth is pregnant. So I don't even don't think that it's even so much here's proof because it's not really proof because she can't see it. Rather, it's almost like, and here's an additional little gift God wants to give you. Your relative Elizabeth, who you apparently love so much and care about, we don't know the backstory, but even Elizabeth is now pregnant. And it has to be something that's been 
very joyful for Mary because she immediately gets up and goes. Uh, the, the words in the scripture actually says she, she gets up with, with, with haste, would be a good English word. She doesn't wait. Uh, she's obviously excited, and she also wants to go and uh, be there to, to help. Um, and so we see that Mary certainly believes the words of God because notice she, she goes, even though she has no proof that Elizabeth is pregnant, she just trusts not only that God is gonna be faithful to what Gabriel just told her about her mission to be the mother of God, but she believes what angel Gabriel said about Elizabeth and she's just gonna go and be there because she knows she's gonna find Elizabeth pregnant. So notice what a joy it would be when these two women meet and sure enough, Elizabeth is pregnant. I mean, not that Mary needed any more proof, but right away she knows, wow, God is literally fulfilling everything he said he would do. And uh, there, I think there are moments like that in our lives where things seem uh, at least a little bit more clear. I don't know about you, but sometimes there are just times of darkness when you're like, what is God doing? I don't understand why he's allowing this or that. And then every now and then, you know, God just gives us a, a little bit of grace, a little extra gift that kind of says, all right, thanks, God. That's pretty good. And, you know, I wonder what it would have been like when Mary sees Elizabeth and sees that she's pregnant. Um, obviously, that would be confirmation for Mary of everything that Gabriel had, had told her, that God really is doing what he said he would do. And if there's, there's probably one theme that sums up what Advent is really all about, it's, it's that God, God actually does what he said he was gonna do. Despite our plans to try to wreck it. I mean, God starts from the beginning with his plan and it's a good one and we don't even hardly get out the gate and we, we wreck it in the Garden of Eden. And God makes a, a different plan and a new plan and we're, we're constantly fighting against God's plan. He's got this incredible uh, plan, the way things could go but, but notice, even with all of us, individuals, billions of people that have lived and will live, constantly doing our will instead of God's, isn't it amazing that God still brings about his plan? Uh, it just gets better and better. All right, people are gonna reject me over and over uh, so that they can't possibly make up for all the sinning they've done. Rather than just wash his hands of all creation and say, that, that's just it, I, this is failed. It's done. They can't possibly make up for all the bad they've done. God actually says, all right, well, I'll just have to go down there in person and, and take care of it myself. It's just an amazing way that God adjusts the, the plan. So you want to know what Christmas is really all about. Well, it's about God does what he says he's going to do. Uh, and in spite of our own sinfulness and fallenness and constant need of redemption and saving, God saves us, uh, and that's, that's really what it's, what it's all about. And, and Mary is, of course, the, the one who, in his incredible deference to us as human beings, God chose to make the entire plan from the time of Isaiah, exile, everything. God's plan from the Garden of Eden was to bring the Messiah, the Savior, born of the seed of the woman, and Mary is the one that stands right there in God's plan and has to say yes or no. And aren't we just all incredibly in her debt that she says yes. And so the Savior is, 
is born for us. One of the things that you'll see in, in Advent, um, in the, the Liturgy of the Hours, uh, so again, the official prayer of the church we're talking about there, I, I'll draw your attention if you want to the Office of, of, office of Readings for December 20th. There's a, a beautiful meditation by St. Bernard on the angel Gabriel encountering Mary and the idea that all of creation waits in balance on that, that one moment for Mary to say, yes. Why do you delay? Make haste, make answer to the angel. As if we're all just waiting expectantly for Mary to say her fiat so that salvation would enter the world. If you wanna know what Christmas is about, you have to know that you need saving. Uh, I mentioned I was, I was down in Branson these last couple of days and um, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the heart of the sort of Southern Baptist Bible Belt sort of era and um, area. And I, I have to say that it's just, it's a little bit of heaven down there because when they say Merry Christmas in Branson, they without a doubt mean, I am so thankful that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ came, paid the debt for my sins and I can live with him forever and I wanna live my life in gratitude for everything that the Savior of the world did for me. I mean, that's what they mean when they say Merry Christmas down there and that's what we all should mean. Uh, it's just, I think if we don't understand how much we need saving, how much we are in exile, how much we are often far from God, if we don't understand just how bad that is, then there is no good news and Christmas doesn't really mean anything. It's just a time for secular parties. The real joy of Christmas is knowing this whole story that Isaiah knew and prophesied, that John the Baptist knew, that Mary knew. They knew the, the scriptures, they knew the story. Mary was perhaps most blown away because she's like, wait, all of salvation history depends on me to say yes at this moment? Who am I? <laughs> that I would be in that place. Do we really understand how much we need saving? You know, I think sometimes out of a, a desire to show the, the joyfulness and the, the goodness of following Jesus, uh, we perhaps have swung the pendulum maybe too far the other way and now minimize sin and don't talk enough about how serious sin is, how much our sins offend God, how much we deserve eternal damnation. Like, how many times do you hear a homily about that these days? I mean, not here, because Father Mark and I are pretty top-notch. So, I mean, we're, we're gonna give you the real deal here. But in general, not everyone's so lucky to be at St. Pat's. And, uh, you know, you don't hear a whole lot of homilies about sin and judgment and death. And yet, if you look at the scripture, it's full of it. Isaiah, before he gets to these nice little things about it's all gonna be better, spends about 60 chapters almost saying, it's bad, it's really, really bad. We need to understand the bad. We really gotta understand the bad or there is no good at Christmas. That's the real joy of Christmas is only gonna come if we know how much I deserve hell. I really do. I have said no to God so many times. Why on earth would I think he would say yes to me again and let me come back? And yet, if we go to confession, God is just gonna forgive us and say, there you go, brand new highway, just fixed. We're gonna go out with our jackhammer and just tear up our road again. God's like, yeah, I know, here, new road, fixed. Over and over and over. I mean, gratitude is, is the, the virtue I think we need during, during Advent. 
gratitude for the, the coming of Jesus. Would, would that the rest of the world could be a little bit more like Branson, uh, I guess. So I, it, it's nice because they go to light the Christmas tree. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this video up on my Sean the Baptist page. But um, when they go to light the, the Christmas tree, it's Branson. So it's an eight-story Christmas tree with 340,000 lights on it that do computer-generated animations and things. Uh, but when they go to light the Christmas tree, the lighting song is, is all about Jesus. By the time we went to light the tree, everybody's got their hands in their air, praising Jesus. This ain't in church. This is at an amusement park. And this, only in Branson can, can this happen, where you got a couple thousand people praising Jesus with their hands in the air to light uh, an eight-story Christmas tree. A little bit of heaven right there. Um, so these three great figures then, Isaiah, John the Baptist, Mary, they all knew uh, the story of salvation history and knew their part in it. I pray that we can kind of do that, that same thing during Advent. So those are the, the readings uh, of Advent. I, if you flip over to the back, there, as I mentioned, there are, there are many texts that the church gives us in the, the sacred liturgy. I've mentioned the Liturgy of the Hours uh, several times now. Uh, I'm gonna plug my, my Advent Christmas song, Christmas carol, Christmas music thing, uh, Thursday the 16th again, uh, because uh, one of my, my favorite Christmas pieces of music is actually from the Liturgy of the Hours. It's not any Christmas carol you would, you would recognize. It's actually an, an antiphon from the Office of Matins for Christmas. Um, so come Thursday the 16th for that one. But in addition uh, to that, there are other prayers, both in the Missal and in the Liturgy of the Hours. And uh, first, I, I just call your attention to their, those first two prayers. Um, I list it as the preface, preface one of Advent and preface two of Advent. Uh, now, again, you guys are the inside baseball liturgical nerds. So um, I say that as honor, by the way. When I say liturgical nerd, I mean, wow, you're awesome because uh, that's the way liturgical nerds are. We're awesome. Uh, so the preface. This is a part of the Mass that a lot of people don't know about or pay attention to. So here's the deal. The, the Eucharistic prayer, or the, the canon, also called the anaphora, the, the, the part of the Mass where the, the priest is praying by himself and the consecration's in the middle of it. That's the, that's the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, for most of the history of the church, there was just, just one of those. The, the first Eucharistic prayer, as it's found, if you're looking in your missal today, Eucharistic prayer one, parenthesis, the Roman canon, because this is the, the prayer that was most associated with the Church of Rome, and then be, became, as the church became more widespread throughout all of Europe, this became the one prayer that was used, and any others that were of smaller tradition were done away with. For most of the history of the church, the Roman canon, or the first Eucharistic prayer, was the only one. So every, every mass for, you know, 1,500 years, that's the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, same text, doesn't change. There are a few little changes on, on big feast days and things, but for the most part, that text is fixed. But they wanted some part that could be a little bit variable, that could change with the season or a feast day. And so they added a variable part that came right before the Eucharistic prayer to kind of go with the part that didn't change. So the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, it doesn't change. It's the same all the time. And then they added a preface, a little part that comes before that was characterized by changing. 
So it would change with the, the season or a saint. It's called the preface because it, it prefaces the Eucharistic prayer. Uh, basically, it comes before it. And, and so this is the part that comes right before the Holy Holy. It's the one that always ends. And so we join the choirs of angels singing that, that prayer is called the preface. So, so now you know. There, there are about uh, 70, some of those in the, the Missal right now. Um, and there, there are various others in collections. So again, these, there, there are a number of because they varied and there's a kind of a, a tradition of variable prefaces and things with the fixed canon. There are two prefaces for Advent. So the one we're using right now is the first one. And um, again, so because it's earlier in Advent, for he assumed at his first coming, the lowliness of human flesh. So we are thinking about Bethlehem, but notice he fulfilled the design you formed long ago and opened for us the way to eternal salvation. That's everything we've just been talking about. If you don't know that he fulfilled the design form long ago, if you have no idea what the design form long ago was, then you have no joy that he has opened for us the way to eternal salvation. But notice that when he comes again in glory and majesty and all is at last made manifest. Well, that sounds like Christ the King, doesn't it? Again, first Sunday of Advent, last Sunday of the year, Christ the King, two sides of the same coin. They kind of flow into each other. Why are we focusing on his birth in Bethlehem? So that when he comes again in glory and majesty, we won't miss it like half the people did the first time in Bethlehem. And all is at last made manifest. We who watch for that day. And again, watching, waiting, expecting. That's my homily from last Sunday. SeanTheBaptist.org, go see it. Um, or hear it at least. We are watching for that day. Again, that's the people look east, the time is near. We're, we're watching, we're standing on the heights like Isaiah says to do, looking to the east. Do we see Jesus coming? Is he coming? It's like Christmas morning. You're like, are mom and dad up? I think I see a light. Stop it, it's two in the morning. They can't be up. Well, they're gonna be up if you keep talking. You know, It's that kind of waiting. Are we as expectant for Jesus to come back as kids are for mom and dad to get up on Christmas morning? That kind of watching, waiting, expecting. We who watch for that day. This is opposed to everyone else who's just going about their business and isn't watchful and are going to be, as Jesus has told us last weekend, they will be caught off guard. The day will come and find them unprepared. Advent is about preparation. So there's no way Jesus should come back and find us unprepared. Advent is a little exercise to prepare us for the return of Jesus in glory so that we may inherit the great promise in which now we dare to hope. Again, you've got to know what the great promise is so that you can hope in it. This is the great promise that Isaiah refers to, that not just the coming of Jesus once in history, but Jesus will return again in glory. We are promised that one day we will be gathered to Jesus in heaven where every tear will be wiped away. Death will be no more. We get these beautiful images of Isaiah, of the holy mountain of God, where the lamb and the leopard lie down together and there's just harmony and peace. We're promised that, like that's God's promise. Do we look forward to that with anxious expectation, watching for it and hope is the virtue by which we, we know it will happen. And so our hearts are stirred up for it. Now, that is the preface that is used all the way up until December 17th. And one thing that's liturgically interesting about the, the season of Advent that it doesn't happen in any of the others. So December 17th until December 23rd, each of those liturgies for that day, the mass, the liturgy of the hours, 
it, it changes on December 17th to shift from general kind of expectation, coming of Jesus and glory, that now these are the last eight days uh, before the, uh, the, the uh, Christmas Eve. <laughs> Excuse me. So we have actually set masses for each of those days and we switched the preface. And so now it's, now it's, it's about uh, John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus at Bethlehem. For all the oracles of the prophets foretold him. Mary knew that, John the Baptist knew that. Everyone living at the time of Jesus, they knew the oracles of the prophets. The virgin mother longed for him with love beyond all telling. So we've got Mary, that great figure. So we've got the oracles of the prophets, that's Isaiah. Mary, love beyond all telling. And John the Baptist, here it is, sang of his coming and proclaimed his presence when he came. So there's our three big stars uh, recapitulated. Father Mark likes that word recapitulate. Anakophaliosis, thy, in, in Greek for those that were paying attention last week in the homily. Check that out. Um, again, we have John the Baptist singing of his coming, proclaim his presence when he came. It is by his gift, God's gift, Jesus's gift, that already we rejoice at the mystery of his nativity. Notice, again, we're not thinking of like, Jesus is about to be born in just a couple weeks. No, we already rejoice because the nativity took place 200, 2,000 years ago. We're already rejoicing. In fact, it's because of his nativity that we're at mass at all so that he may find us watchful in prayer and exultant in his praise. Notice, exult. Goes right back to, remember the collect I started with? Stir up, excita in Latin. Stir it up. Expect, rise up, exult, lift up, lift up your heads, look to the east, all these beautiful uh, lifting up and praise language. So the, the second preface of Advent, which we start on December 17th, gets very much more in tune to the, the coming of Jesus at, at Christmas, the stars of Isaiah, John the Baptist, and Mary. And, and then the other thing that I'll, I'll point out to you um, is in the liturgy of the hours, just as you saw for morning prayer this morning, there's a, a little antiphon right before the, the Benedictus, the blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, that prayer from Luke. There, there's an antiphon that goes with it, just like there's an antiphon for the Psalms and things. So we kind of take the, the Psalms or the, the canticles and we add little antiphons to color them. The antiphons for Vespers, our evening prayer, uh, on December 17th through December 23rd, those eight days, seven days, uh, they are special enough that uh, these are the verses of the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. There are seven different antiphons for each of the seven nights of the 17th to the 23rd, and they all start with the word O, and then a title of the Messiah coming. Uh, so they're, they're known as the O antiphons. If you were to Google them, uh, you can just Google O antiphons, and you will, you will find them. Uh, o sapientia, so wisdom, O Adonai. Adonai is the name of Lord in Hebrew, so it would be a substitute for the actual name Yahweh of, of, of God. O, um, uh, o uh, Radix Jesse, the, the root of Jesse. Uh, o Clavis Davidica, O Key of David. O Oriens, which we talked about, the one who rises, Jesus, look, people look east. Uh, uh, oh, Rex Gentium, oh, King of the Nations, 
nations here, meaning all the Gentiles even. So it's a very interesting title for the Messiah that he would be king, not just of the Jews, but Rex Gentium, king of all the nations. And then the, the one to end all that everybody knows is O, Emmanuel. Uh, that's, you wanna know where we get the, the word Emmanuel? It's from Isaiah. And then the church puts it in the Liturgy of the Hours on December 23rd, O Emmanuel, which as we're told in scripture means God is with us. So it's interesting if you take those, the first letter of each of those backwards in Latin, you get two words, arrow, cross, which means I will be tomorrow or I will come tomorrow. So you, you end up on December 23rd uh, with the last one of it. If you put them backwards, you get I'm coming tomorrow, essentially. So it's a little, that's liturgical nerd humor right there. I mean, that's, you talk about inside baseball, that's it. Uh, but yeah, you can, you can Google that and learn more about the, the O antiphons uh, and just know that that's, that's where the verses of O come, O come, Emmanuel come from. This chant that it, it's probably at least from the 11th or 10th century. Uh, true story, uh, Monheim Steamroller, when he, they, they have a beautiful version of this on the, the second Monheim Steamroller Christmas uh, album. He, Chip Davis, who runs it, he said, you know, I want to make this more, more weighty. Can we, let's put it in Latin. He had no idea, apparently, he says, that of course these antiphons are originally written in Latin. Um, he, he said, I, I want to make it sound old. So can someone like put this in Latin for me? And of course, well, yeah, you go right to the Liturgy of the Hours, you look it up and there it is, because it was written in Latin, but he apparently didn't know that. Uh, so, uh, Veni, Veni, Emmanuel, uh, those antiphons make up the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So that might be a good way to kind of pray through, through each of those things, thinking about how much we need God to be wisdom, how much we need Jesus to really be the king of the, the world again, those themes. And most especially, uh, obviously, Emmanuel is, is kind of the privileged title of the season of Advent for the coming Messiah. That's the mystery right there. God is, is with us, Emmanuel as messed up as this world is, as much as we have destroyed it, made it go wrong, God didn't say, the heck with all you. I mean, I gave you free will to choose me. You said you'd choose me. You didn't, so you're all done. No, God says, I'm gonna come down and fix it. I am Emmanuel, I am with you. All right, so I think we're gonna move on to some questions uh, now. And um, we're, we're gonna break up eventually here into uh, a chance to do those little reflection questions I gave you. But just right before we, we do that, I just wanted to see if there are any general questions that people had about anything we just, we just talked about. Okay, well, what we're gonna do then is um, I put on the bottom. Yeah. Oh, okay. I always thought it was interesting how Zacharias said almost the same thing, or Gabriel came to him too. Yes. Yeah, so Glenn is asking about the fact that uh, the angel Gabriel uh, not only appears to Mary in that famous visitation scene, but also in the temple to Zechariah. And uh, Zechariah does not believe that it's, it's possible. And uh, he, wants, he wants proof, basically. They're very similar. Mary, there's some distinctions between Mary's response. But Zechariah is famously struck dumb uh, and is unable to speak um, after the angel Gabriel comes to him and says that his wife... Elizabeth is gonna bear John the Baptist. Interesting little part about um, when they go to circumcise John the Baptist, Zechariah has been unable to speak for the last nine months. 
And they, they go to name him. Uh, and normally the, the father would give the name to the child. And this is very important for Jesus's own name because the, we, we know who mothers of children are. It's more obvious. Babies come out of mothers. Um, no doubt about who someone mother is. Uh, but who the father is, is, is a little more dicey to figure out sometimes. I mean, not normally, but it could be. Uh, but the way in especially Jewish law that a, uh, a son especially would be given the, the rights of sonship is that the father would give him his name, that you would name the child. And this is the father saying, this is, this is my child. I claim this child by giving the child the name. So Zechariah is unable to speak and they come to his, his time where he's supposed to give the child the name and he can't speak. And so Elizabeth speaks for him, which would have been not according to Jewish law. The father's got to name the child, not the mother. But, but Elizabeth says his name is John. And it says that they actually, they make signs to Zechariah because he's supposed to be called Zechariah after his father. It's your firstborn son. He should be called Zechariah. And, and Zechariah famously writes, John is his name because that's the name that angel Gabriel revealed that he should be called. And now he can speak. And the first words out of his mouth are that beautiful prayer that we prayed this morning uh, at, at morning prayer. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, the, the Benedictus. When you see on the flip side with Mary, notice angel Gabriel comes to Mary, says, you will give him the name Jesus. And he also says to Joseph in the dream, you were to call him Jesus. Like what's, what's the big deal here? Well, Joseph it says that after he was born, he was circumcised on the eighth day and he gave him the name Jesus as the angel told him. This is Joseph, once again, being obedient to the angel Gabriel, but it's also Joseph claiming Jesus uh, as his own child legally. Uh, we know he's not biologically the father of Jesus, but Joseph by naming Jesus claims him as his, his own son. And so legally, Joseph is the son of the line of David, and so by, by Joseph giving Jesus his name, he is legally grafted into that family tree of King David because Joseph is of the house of David. That's why they have to go to Bethlehem, remember, the city of David. Uh, and so that Christmas stump, once again, God, God does what he says he's gonna do. He promised the family tree of David would flower again. And when Jesus is given his name by Joseph, he becomes legally grafted into the family of King David and fulfills God's prophecy in a way bigger than we would ever uh, expect. So let the Christmas stump shine in your hearts uh, for the rest of this Advent season. Right. So Father Sean has given us a, uh, a few reflection questions. We're actually gonna just invite you to think about one or all three of those before you leave and move. But perhaps we can, I'd like to say thanks to Father Sean for uh, sharing with us these insights and that, and I find it quite illuminated, so thank you, Father Sean, for being with us this morning. Thank you all for being here. Thank you.